question of identity is one of the great questions of our day. People around, particularly the Western Hemisphere, seem to be particularly perplexed as to who they are or what they are. Mira Loma Elementary School in San Francisco, California, released last week that they will no longer have gender-specific restrooms for the elementary school children. They have somewhere between six and eight children there that identify as transgender. On the University of Tennessee recently had caused a national uproar when from on one of its administrative websites, it said that we should now ask people uh, and encourage students and professors to do so, that we should now ask people what their preferred pronoun is. And if they were not sure if they were a he or a she, that we should use generic pronouns like ze and zer. The question of identity is a staggering one in the world that we live in today. And what I want you to understand this morning is that there is nothing as restless as the human soul detached from its identity, detached from its purpose. And the restlessness that we see in the culture around us and the restlessness that we see in the world around us is directly attributed to a fundamental misunderstanding of who we are and what our identity is. That we live in the midst of a great identity crisis that began all the way back in Genesis chapter 3. This morning we're going to be in Genesis chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 26. If you would stand with me as we prepare to read God's word together. We're going to be speaking directly to this reality of identity crisis. A problem that has long perplexed the human race. Beginning in verse 26, it says... Then God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply, and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth, and to every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has breath of life, I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. You may be seated. When we come to verse 26 of Genesis chapter 1, we are coming to what we should understand to be the climax of the creation narrative. Throughout the creation, there has been a very specific formula that God has, went, has, has used. There has been a, a rhythm to creation. Over and over and over, it will say something along the lines of, let there be, and it will be, and it will be good as declared by God. But when we come to verse 26, and we come to the last portion of Genesis chapter 1, day 6, we have a remarkable break in the rhythm of creation. 
It doesn't follow the usual formula. Rather, in verse 26, it says, let us make man in our image. That apparently the tone here is one of contemplation. That, that among the members of the Godhead, among the members of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, there is a, a contemplating of making man not like the rest of creation, not like everything else that you've seen. Instead, but making man in the very image of the triune God. Making man in the image of the Godhead, the Godhead itself. And so there's this break in creation. And the way that we should understand Genesis chapter 1 to work is that Genesis chapter 1 is moving in an ascending order. That each part of creation is a little bit greater than the last. And so it moves and it's, and it's building up towards something. And when we come to verse 26, when we come to the last part of day 6, what we are hitting is we are hitting the crescendo of creation. We are hitting the climax of creation, namely when we are made. Because we are that which is in creation that is made in the image of God. We are that which is made in the likeness of the triune God. Now what does that mean exactly? What exactly does it mean to be made in God's image or to be made in God's likeness? Moses was writing this to a group of people that would have been quite perplexed perhaps by what that could have meant because they were coming from a society, in, in, in the Egyptian society, in which they believed they them, themselves could be made into gods. And so being made into the image of God, is that to say that we are made to be many gods ourselves or some sort of deity? Not at all. You see, the words that Moses chooses to write this are very precise, they're very, they're very, uh, they're very decisive. That when he's talking about likeness and he's talking about image, he's talking about the picture of sonship. That as a father resembles his fa uh, son, resembles his father, so we resemble the heavenly father. We are not identical, we are similar. There is resemblance. As a matter of fact, in Genesis chapter 5, as uh, Moses writes about Seth, the third child of Adam and Eve, he writes of him being in the likeness of his father, being like Adam. And so he uses the exact same word that he uses here in chapter 1, verse 26. So the picture here is not something that is identical to God, but rather someone that bears the resemblance to God in many of his characteristics and in many, much of who he is and the way that he reveals himself to be in the scriptures. John Calvin, the great church reformer, phrased it up in a helpful way, I think. That the way humans are intended to be, as the image bearers of God, as the we are to be like mirrors reflecting back God's glory to all of the creation. That because we are that which is in creation that is most like God and most resembles God. And God has given, given us such a distinct dignity as to represent him and as to image him and to picture him. That we should be as a mirror reflecting back the glory of God to all of the cosmos. That we are that which God put on earth that is most like him, that is most filled with his glory, most filled with his characteristics. And as a result, we have the responsibility to Project that back into the world. And so we are mirrors. Now, when God is talking in verses 1, uh, 26 through 31, he tells them that they should do what? He says you should be fruitful and multiply. In other words, he is giving them the responsibility of filling the earth. Now, why would God, having made them in his image, make that such a priority? 
Why would he make it such a priority that human beings, man and woman, would come together to procreate and to fill the earth with image bearers? It's because when God, when, when God created us in his image and he placed us here as mirrors, that what we do when we procreate, what we do as we fill the earth, is there is a sense in which at the very same time we are filling the earth with God's glory. That as we send out children and as we spread across the nations and as we were to cover the earth, as we covered the created world, we were filling the created world with the very glory of God, the very presence of God, the reflected image of God. It's very similar to me to the Great Commission. I think we see the Great Commission here rooted and established even, a foreshadowing of. What do we do? We are going, I'm leaving Wednesday along with ten other, or nine other, eight other people, and we are going to go halfway across the world on a 16-hour flight to Africa because this is what the Scriptures tell us to do, to make disciples of all nations, to go to the ends of the earth, as Acts 1-8 says. And what are we to do? We're to raise up people of God. We're to call them to the glories of God. We are to preach to them the good news and the gospel. For what reason? That the gospel, that the glory of God, that the hallowing of God's name might spread and cover every corner of this earth. That the earth was built and intended, remember, as a grand theater, a grand stage for the glory of God to be put on full display and full demonstration. And as we fill the earth with the image bearers, we are doing that. And as we go to the nations to call them to the gospel, we are doing that. And so this morning, what I want us to do is I want us to zero in on three ways that I think we are built to reflect the glory of God in this creation. Three ways in which we as the image bearers of God, those who resemble God, are built and designed and created so that we might reflect his glory to the ends of the earth. Reflect his glory in all the cosmos. The first of these is that I want us to see that God designed us for worship. We are designed for worship. To be a worshiper is to be distinctly human. Humans are the only part of the earth-roaming creation that worships God in a rational, logical, and purposeful way. We know that all of God's creation is heralding His glory. We saw that in Psalm 19:1 last week. But they aren't choosing to do it. They aren't doing it. They are doing it instead instinctively. It is only human beings bearing the image of God that purposefully, rationally, logically, passionately worships. God, you will never experience this. You'll never flip to National Geographic Channel and have a, a, a group of uh, Steve Irwin-like people that says, we're approaching the head of zebras. Wait, what's that, Earl? Do you hear that? What are they doing? They're singing Amazing Grace. Remarkable. That's never going to happen. You're never going to stumble into your cat in the midst of meditations on the powers and glories of God. Your wiener dog is not lifting high Jesus' name. Why? They weren't built for worship like you were. That's distinctly and remarkably and beautifully human. Only humans worship. Only humans bring glory to God that way. Now how does that have to do with the image of God? What does that have to do with us being made in his image? You see, 
because we are made in the image of God, we have the right design for worship. That being moral agency. Moral agency. See, throughout the scriptures, God is presented as being profoundly moral. Even in the creation account, we see what? He creates and then what? It is good. And at the end, at the end of, as we read this morning, after the six days of creation have been completed, what does he say? And it was very good. And in the goodness of creation, it is intended to point us to the goodness and the perfection and the glory of God himself. That God, the God that is behind all of this, the God that speaks in ex nihilo, everything comes to be, the God that is behind all of that is a good and right God. The scriptures present him as a holy God. That being that he is so powerfully pure, so beautifully good, so to the very essence of his being, perfect and beautiful, that he is set apart from everything else that's ever been or ever will be because he is the source of rightness and the source of morality and the source of grace and goodness and long-suffering love. In the law of God, we see that his standards of morality are clear and defined. They're not arbitrary. They're not ambiguous. In the law that God issues and decrees on Mount Sinai, the law that is fulfilled by the coming Christ himself, it establishes that God has an understanding and a definite plan of morality. Our God is a moral God. And we, being made in his image, are moral people. We, bearing his likeness, we, resembling him, are created as those beings, the only beings, in fact, on all of the earth that have some standard of morality. As a matter of fact, we could go across every uh, country, every civilization that is on earth right now, every civilization that has ever existed on earth predating us, and we could find that there are certain rules of morality that would exist Certainly there are things that we would differ on, but every single one of them would agree that stealing is wrong. And stealing is a problem. Why? In the core of their souls, they know. God has written on their souls eternity. God has written onto their souls morality. My bulldog steals the food of my Springer Spaniel every single night. And you know I've never seen her feel bad about it. Not one time. And not only that, I've never seen poor Rambo, the Springer Spaniel, call her out on it. Not one time. Every single, every single night, it's the same thing. I fill both the bowls. Sally goes, devours them in like 10 seconds. And Rambo, being the sweet-natured cat, he, dog he is, he comes following after me. Hey, won't you pet me? Can you pet me? Meanwhile, his food is just being annihilated. They don't have morality. They aren't made in the image of God. They aren't made to demonstrate his glory that way. We see this clearly in Genesis chapter 2. In verse 9, it says that in the midst of the garden, God placed two trees, right? That in the midst of the garden, in the center of the garden, God puts there two spectacular trees. The tree of the knowledge of life, or the, I'm sorry, the tree of life in which man is to eat and live as immortal with God forever. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of which they are prohibited. The tree which God uses to establish moral boundaries. The tree which God uses to, to, to describe to them the excess of what they have by seeing the little bit that they have that is kept from them. Now what is the purpose of that tree? Have you ever thought about that? 
What is the purpose of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Why is there a tree in the middle of the garden that you're not supposed to eat of? Why would God ever put that tree there in the beginning? If he knew we would eat, and he knew we would sin, and he knew we would fall, why must there be a tree? Because God created us as decision makers. God created us with a distinct dignity of choice. God created us with the distinct dignity and the ability and the opportunity of worship. The reason the tree is in the midst of the garden is the tree represents an opportunity for them to worship God, for them to obey God, for them to honor God. It showed that there must be a standard. There must be some other choice. There must be some opportunity for other to choose something other than God. You see, God did not create us as worship robots. God did not create us as worship machines. God created us as moral agents. Morality is necessary for worship. If you don't have a sense of morality, if morality is not in your soul, if it is not in your inner being, you have no opportunity. You have no instinct. You have no pleasure of worship. The tree is placed in the center of the garden because at the center of who we are, God has placed moral agency there that we get to choose the difference between right and wrong. If we had no ability to choose what is moral and what is immoral, how could we recognize what is good and what is bad? How could we recognize what is beautiful and what is ugly? How could we recognize what is grace and what is hatred? How could we know the difference? But God placed morality in our souls so that we could recognize him in a way that no other part of creation is capable. And not only that, we see the method of creation, I think, in the tree. I mean, the method of worship. Not only do we see the ability of worship, but we see the method of worship. How do we worship God? How is it that we bring glory to him? It is through willing obedience. Willing obedience. It is to see God as the chief good in all the universe. It is to see God as the chief source of rightness, the chief source of righteousness, the chief source of holiness, the chief source of provision, the chief source of protection, the chief source of power. It is to see him and see him as being greater than everything else that we find. And it is to choose him above all of that. It is to choose him willingly. It is to say that, God, I know that you're withholding this from me for my own good and for your own glory. It is to say that, God, I know that your plan for me is better than my plan for me. God, I know that you have given me bountifully of all that I have here, and I would rather give, have what you have given me than anything else that I don't have. God, you are all that I need. God, I will live willfully in submission to your will. So that's how we worship. We worship through willing obedience. Through the moral decision, through our moral agency to define that God is good and nothing else is. See, I think this is the chief reason of the identity crisis that we find around us. The chief reason for the identity crisis, crisis that we find around us is that we have misguided, misaimed, misplaced worship. We have been created to worship, but we have not been created to worship ourselves we have not been, able, been created to worship our happiness. We have not been created to worship our leisure. At the center of the garden was not a man, 
Man was not created as the center of the universe. Man was not created as the center of the creation. At the center of the garden are two trees. One representing the life-giving power of God. The other representing the law-giving authority of God. Resting in the midst of the garden. Manifesting his presence specifically and powerfully. The world revolves around God himself. And whenever we come off kilter, whenever we come uh, uncalibrated, and we begin to place ourselves at the center of it, it will always fall apart. Misguided, misaimed worship will always lead to the destruction of your soul. Every time, every single time, when you worship something other than God Himself, whether it be your children, whether it be your husband, or your boyfriend, or your job, or your bank account, or yourself and your ambition, whatever you worship other than God Himself will ultimately destroy you. Evaluate your worship this morning, brothers and sisters. You were created with a unique opportunity of it. Is it properly aimed? Is it properly placed? Not only were we designed for worship, but we were created for responsibility. We were created for responsibility. Notice how often he talks about that in the text that we read this morning. He says, uh, and God said, and he gives them command, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, subdue the earth, have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the, over the birds of the air. As you go into Genesis chapter 2, he begins to talk about the responsibility that they have to name all of the animals. God brings them in front of him, and, and uh, Adam is charged with the responsibility of naming them. He is charged with the responsibility of, of uh, working in the garden and tending to the garden so that he is provided for, so that he has all that he, ha- all that he needed. We see in the midst of Genesis 1 and 2 that God, being made in his image, created us for the purpose of bearing responsibility, of shouldering responsibility. Now, we live in a culture that does not like the word responsibility. We live in a culture that wants to do everything that we can do to abdicate responsibility, to push responsibility away from us. We want our teenagers not to bear any responsibility, but to live carefree while they are young. We want our college students, as they go off, we dismiss the hellish way that they live, saying they're only young once, they're only without responsibility once in their lives. As we become young married couples, we don't want to have children because that will impede on our our freedom, that will impede on our finances, that will impede on the things that we can do and the places that we can go. In other words, we don't want the responsibility. As we move into working age, we want to retire as quickly as we can retire. Why? We don't want the responsibility of work. We want to be able to come home in leisure, sit in our couch, play golf, go fishing, and collect seashells down by the seashore. We don't want the responsibility. But what I want you to understand, brothers and sisters, is that being made in the image of God, being built in his image, is that you have been built for responsibility. And I want us to see this responsibility in two dimensions. The first dimension is is that you were built for the responsibility of work and rulership. Work and rulership. He says, I'm giving you dominion. You are in dominion over all that happens here. In other words, do you realize that we are responsible for what happens on earth? Has that ever crossed your mind? We as the rulers of earth, we as that which God has dignified with such dominion are that which will give an account before God for what happens here. We will answer for what happens in our lives on earth. God has given us dominion over it. God has given us 
responsibility of work. I, I hate to break your bu- burst your bubble, all right? Here's what some of you think. One day, when Jesus comes back, not going to be any work to do. Finally, when Jesus comes back, I'm going to be chilling down by the beach, playing golf at Pebble Beach, and life's going to be good. Genesis 1 and 2, there's already work there before sin comes. In paradise, there is work. I believe that Eden is the prototype of the new earth. There's going to be work in the new earth. Now, your jerkwad boss that's breathing down your neck and cussing at you ain't going to be there. You ain't got to worry about that guy. Boss in heaven, great. Super guy. Not going to have to deal with that. But there's going to be work there. There's going to be work there because there is contentment and purpose and joy and satisfaction that comes to the human soul through work that we can't get anywhere else. There is, there is peace that comes to our soul through the accomplishment of something for God's glory that is an act of worship to him in a way that our singing never can be. That our labor is a demonstration of us laying ourselves on the altar as a living sacrifice before God. Don't avoid work. Your soul cannot bear the weightiness of a wasted life. It can't. Your soul can't bear the weight of a wasted life. How many people do you know in your life that have retired early only to die there soon after? God did not create us to do nothing. God created us to labor, to have dominion, to rule, to work, so that there might be satisfaction in our souls. There's nothing wrong with retiring as long as you are retiring so that you can go to work. As long as you are retiring so that you can deepen the purpose which God has given you so that you can go into a, a more productive season of ministry. And retirement is a glorious gift to you as long as you're retiring to go to work. No, run to work, brothers and sisters. Run to work as an act of worship. Run to work as your responsibility. Teach your children to work. Make your college students work. Allow them to bear the weight of that responsibility because everything great that you've ever had in your life, every source of healthy pride that you have was the result of laborious, toilsome work. Now the other dimension of responsibility is that not only are we responsible to work and to rule, we are responsible morally. That as those that are moral agents, as those that God has given this gift of choice, we will be held responsible morally for the choices that we make. The Bible is filled with this. In 2 Corinthians 5.10, it says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and we will give an account, Christian and non-Christian alike, for the good and the bad that we have done. That we will give an account before God for the moral choices that we have made or the immoral choices that we have made. That we will answer to God for misguided worship. We will answer to God for slothfulness and laziness. We will answer to God as those that are moral agents built in his image that bear the responsibility of earth. If you're a teacher in the church, he says you will bear an even greater responsibility as one who was to divide the word rightly, one that was to shepherd the flock faithfully. This is what Paul's getting at in Romans 3.23. He's talking about us being made in the image of God when he says, For all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. In other words, 
All of us have sinned, and in our sinning, we have fallen short of the image that has been placed in us of God himself. That we are not representing God as he would have us to represent him. We are not mirroring in him and reflecting him as God would have us to mirror and reflect him because of the sin in our life. We have fallen short. And Romans 6 says the exact same thing that Romans 2 says. Romans, I mean, uh, Genesis 2 says when it says, as a result, you will surely die. See, God gave him the moral agency but then he gave him the moral responsibility and says if you eat of this fruit there's going to be a consequence you're going to surely die Romans 6 23 says the wages of sin is death you will surely die choose carefully choose prudently choose diligently but brothers and sisters you must choose you must choose today and you must choose tomorrow you must choose now the truth of the matter is, is that's a terrifying reality, isn't it? Unless we're just absolutely de delusional. It's a terrifying reality to realize that one day we're going to stand before Jesus' judgment seat and give an account for the good and the bad that we've done. Because we know the disruption in our own souls. We understand that there is a forever out there somewhere. Deny it as we want to. Deny it as culture may. We know God has written it on our hearts that there is eternity. And that's why Jesus came. Jesus came because you can't bear the weight of this responsibility by yourself. Jesus came because you were going to fall short of the glory of God. Jesus came because he knew that you were going to blow this and that you were going to surely die. And so Jesus came to die in your place, to bear the weight of your fallenness, the weight of how far short you fell of the image of God so that he might take how he perfectly imaged God and place it on you. Covering you in his righteousness so that you could stand before the Father as a son or a daughter in sonship. This morning, you've got to choose. God has created you to be able to. You've got to decide whether or not you're going to follow Christ or not. You've got to decide whether I'm telling you the truth or not. You've got the responsibility. You've got it. Finally, what I want us to see this morning is that we were built for Escape my mind. Relationship. I knew I would get it. We were built for relationship. The perils of no notes preaching sometimes. We were built for relationship. Not only were we designed for worship. Not only were we created for responsibility. But we are built for relationship. We come to the end of Genesis chapter 2 and what does it say? It says for the very first time that something is not good. It says for the very first time that something is not good. Throughout all of creation, God makes it, and it is good, and it, then it is very good. But we come to the end in verse 18 of chapter 2, and it says, but it is not good for man to be alone. It is not good for man to be alone. In other words, man is incomplete. Man is broken. Man is not perfect alone without the other part of humanity. And so God takes from his rib, and he makes woman. He creates society with the threads of marriage, weaving it together and sewing it together because we aren't built for loneliness. As a human being, you cannot thrive. You cannot be who God created you to be and God intended you to be and God purposed you to be alone. Nobody can. No 
no human can accomplish what God intends for them to accomplish by themselves. We were built for create, we were built for community, we were built for relationship. Again, we see this rooted in the image of God himself. In the verse 26, what does it say? It goes to the plural pronoun, right? Let us make, God, uh, make man in our image. In other words, God in the Godhead among the Father, the Son, and the Spirit has eternally existed in relationship with one another, in community with one another, in perfect relationship with one another. And that we, being made in his image, are intended to mirror that. Now, I believe that the relationship, though, that we have with one another the, the loneliness that we feel when we are without one another is intended to point for, to us and to foreshadow for us a greater relationship that we are built to have. To foreshadow for us that we are to look even further to a, a greater relationship that we are dignified with the opportunity to have. Relationship with God himself. No other part of creation claims that privilege. Your dog can't, your cat can't, the animals of the wild don't, the sun doesn't, no, the mountains don't. There is no other part of creation that is built for eternal relationship with God except for the image bearers of God. In chapter 2, verse 4, we have a shift that takes place. There's a shift. It says, um, at the, I'm sorry, in, uh, yes, in verse 4. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In the day that the Lord God made the heavens and the earth. The Lord God. Circle the Lord God. There's a change there that happens. Throughout Genesis chapter 1, God has been called Elohim. The name of God that is used throughout Genesis chapter 1 is the name Elohim. And Elohim speaks to the majesty of God. It speaks to the power of God. It speaks to the creative nature of God. It speaks to the transcendence of God. But then when we get to verse 4, it shifts. It goes from Elohim to Elohim Yahweh, Lord God. And then throughout the rest of chapter 2, he is called Yahweh. Now you're thinking, well, thank you for that beautiful piece of information. This is incredibly powerful. Because what we see as God moves from Genesis 1 to Genesis 2 is God moving from transcendent to creator to personal God. You see, Yahweh is the covenant name of God. It is who God revealed himself to be to Moses in the burning bush. It is the God who on Mount Sinai says, I will be your God and you will be my people. It is the God that endured through long suffering and loving kindness and persevering love. The keeping power of Israel, now the keeping power of us. It is a God that doesn't, isn't content to build this clock and wind it up and then let it run. Instead, it's a God that wants to reveal himself to us so that we might know him, so that we might have relationship with us. No other part of creation can say that God took and breathed into them the breath of life except for humans, because humans were set apart to live in relationship with God alone. This morning, you are built for relationship with God and to be detached from God is to be, as a branch, detached from the vine. You will be dead and empty and afraid. Think about the, what we see around us. Think about the questions that your teenagers are answering. Think about the news headlines that are flashing across your screen. Our world is empty, isn't it? Our world is broken, isn't it? Our world is seeking, isn't it? Our world is searching, isn't it? Our world is chaotic. Our world is confused. Our world is broken. Why? It's a branch detached 
from the vine. We were built as image bearers of God to live in relationship with God, to bring worship to God, to fill the earth with the glory of God. And anytime we are detached from that, we are utterly detached from our souls. This morning, the invitation that I have for you is to come and enter into relationship with God. Come. Come enter into relationship with him who created you in his image, who privileged you with the dignity of worship, who privileged you with the dignity of bearing his resemblance. Christian, how well are you bearing that image? How well are you demonstrating the glory of God wherever you go? Let me pray for us today.